Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This is a twice monthly podcast with a feature story of modern crime and a hint of historical true crime for dessert. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. It's free to subscribe and free to listen. This is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of murder and other assaults. Listener discretion is advised. I first recorded and uploaded this story in December of 2018. I like to think that I've learned a little since then, and seeing as this was one of the true crime cases on my list of ones that have most fascinated me, I wanted to do it justice by editing the writing a bit and re-recording it. I was probably 12 or 13 when I first saw the movie Mr. Goodbar, or Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which was based on the real-life murder. It was a 1977 movie, but I first saw it in the mid-80s when I was babysitting for a family who were one of the first families on the block to have cable television. They had a new premium channel then that was called Showtime, and I was pretty curious to see what movies were on it. So anyways, I got the kids to bed, and I could not wait to watch something on the Showtime. The movie didn't start out scary, not at first. A young Diane Keaton plays a very independent woman who is a school teacher for the hearing impaired. She lives alone in her own apartment in New York. I like the idea of living an independent life like that. So I'm watching the movie, and it starts out with a fairly sophisticated woman, at least to me from my Midwest suburban perspective. Then it got a little sketchy, but I was still enthralled. A young Richard Gere plays a very interesting role, and from there, this definitely makes me question where it is going next. And then bam, this movie has taken a serious turn and then straight into a nightmare. I don't remember when I found out the movie was based on a true story, but when I did, I was obsessed. It was the 80s, though, and no internet, and early into the mid-90s, it was still pretty limited. So it took many years before I was able to find the book and then get a hold of newspapers from that time and other accounts of the case. Okay, on to the true story. This is the true story of the murder of Roseanne Quinn. It was the basis for the novel Looking for Mr. Goodbar, written by Judith Rosner. The novel was the basis for the 1977 movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar, starring Diane Keaton and Richard Gere. Both the novel and movie were loosely based on Roseanne's murder. In the movie and the novel, Roseanne's name was changed to Teresa. There is another book called Closing Time by Lacey Forsberg, which says up front that it is the true story of the Looking for Mr. Goodbar murder, but names were changed, and some parts, especially some of the dialogue, was fictionalized. In this book, Closing Time, Roseanne was called Catherine. I definitely recommend this book. The majority of it is true, like I said, and pretty much just the dialogue was fictionalized. There's a lot more in this book than I could ever tell you here in, a, in an episode. It's an addictive read. I recommend it. After you hear the whole story, you will understand why it was covered in so many newspaper accounts. It was an ongoing case and investigation and was covered just about every step of the way through it and even after it. Roseanne Quinn was her real name. She was a teacher for the hearing impaired and she lived in the city of New York. She was really good with her students and they loved her. 
She was 28 and pretty with long reddish hair and a beautiful smile. She came from an Irish Catholic family that lived in suburban New Jersey. Monday, January 1st, 1973, Roseanne spent the morning in bed reading. She had a small one-room apartment, a studio. The day was cold and wintry in New York. The streets looked frozen because it was so quiet due to the holiday. She was getting a little restless and thought about the night before. The previous night, New Year's Eve, she did not go out as she normally would. She was expecting a certain someone to call, and she had waited for him. She read the book Deliverance that night while she waited. He did not call, and she did not go out. Around four in the afternoon New Year's Day, though, she decided she would not stay in again. She put her book aside and got up, got dressed, and went to a small neighborhood bar called W.M. Tweeds. She knew the owner there, and it was right across the street. The streets were cold and deserted, but it was warm and crowded inside Tweed's bar. Back then, you could smoke inside bars, and people were smoking. The air was thick with it. John Wayne Wilson was there, but he was calling himself by a different name that night. Gary Guest, the friend he arrived with, had already gone home. Wilson had dark blonde hair, blue eyes, and most people considered him attractive. Some even said handsome. Roseanne Quinn was drinking at the other end of the bar. She stayed seated for a while, sipping on her drink, before venturing around to talk to people. At the end of the night, Roseanne had taken John Wayne Wilson back to her apartment with her. What happened after that, and why, would be a story much more horrible than anyone could imagine. The next day was Tuesday, January 2nd, and school was back in. When Roseanne didn't show up, St. Joseph's School got a substitute teacher. Someone did try to call her at home, but there was no answer. On Wednesday, when she still didn't show up, and there was no answer by phone, the principal sent a teacher to West 72nd Street to knock on her door. There was no answer to his knocking, but he could hear Roseanne's cat inside. He went to find the superintendent of the building. He asked the super if he'd seen her, and he said he hadn't. He told him about not showing up for work for two days and her not answering the phone or the door. He asked if he could check. The super opened the door, and the cat came screaming out and ran past them. What he found inside, he had wished he had never seen. The police were called. The police arrived to a small, disheveled room. There were piles of clothes on the floor and dirty dishes stacked in the sink. Roseanne was lying on the double bed, partially covered by a blue robe. Her skin was white, and her neck was caked with a brown, chalky substance that turned out to be blood that had been drying for days and had cracked. Her red hair was spread out above her head, and on the wall were large sprays of blood. Her lips were severely swollen, and there were bruises on both of her cheeks. Her eyes were closed. A five-inch long carving knife was found on the counter. It was bent in the middle. They thought it looked like it had been cleaned off, but they didn't touch anything. They had to wait for the lab guys to come out. They looked around for anything else, but found nothing. There were a bunch of large red candles on the windowsill, some Christmas cards, and piles of magazines and books. There were also two drawings, one of Mickey Mouse and one of Donald Duck. The lab guys came in, took many pictures, and took any bits of evidence they could find from the robe before they removed it. It was bad under the robe. She was naked and covered in blood. Her skin was slashed and shred from her neck to her stomach. It would turn out to be 18 stab wounds in all. Her body was contorted. There were six stab wounds in her neck and 12 in her stomach. Her jugular vein was completely severed. 
There were bruises on her arms, wrists, and thighs. Extra disturbing was the fact that a fat red candle, just like the ones on her windowsill, had been jammed into her vagina. It was a horrific crime scene. Gary Guest called in sick to work that same day, Wednesday, the day Roseanne's body had been discovered. He had also called into sick on Tuesday as well. His friend John Wayne Wilson had told him that he had murdered a woman. He was worried about Wilson, and he was worried about what Wilson had told him. He didn't know what to think. There was nothing in the newspapers about it. He wondered if Wilson was lying about killing the girl. Wilson had asked Gary for money to leave town, and Gary wondered if it was just a story to get the money. The detectives on the case learned that Roseanne was a nice girl, a teacher to deaf children at St. Joseph's School, and her parents lived in New Jersey. They were a good middle-class family. No one in the building thought she had a steady boyfriend, though. When the lab guys were done, they told them they found no fingerprints and that it looked like the apartment had been wiped down. They moved on in the investigation by talking to the people at the stores and bars close to her building to see what anyone knew about Roseanne. They heard a whole lot of, quote, she was a nice girl, end quote. At a bar called the Copper Hatch, the bartender seemed to think he had last seen her on Monday, January 1st. She was a good kid, he told him, and that was terrible to hear her being killed. He couldn't say who she was with, but he did say that she had two different bar personalities. She was either really quiet and to herself, or really loud and out there. He also told them she had a limp. Across the street from Copper Hatch was W.M. Tweeds. The owner of that bar, Stephen Resnick, knew Roseanne for years. He told them he had probably last seen her that Monday night and that she had come in around 9 or 10 and left with the group around 1 a.m. to go to Copper Hatch. He told them he couldn't tell if she was with anyone in particular. He said she had moods where she could talk up a storm to everyone in sight, and Monday night had been one of those nights. He did tell them about a guy that he didn't like that had beaten up Roseanne one time. That guy hadn't been there that night, though. He gave the detectives the man's name and told them they should also talk to his bartender when he came in. The bartender told them that Roseanne almost always carried a book and was either quiet in reading, or on other nights she would drink Johnny Walker Red and get talkative with people. She would sometimes get loud, but she was never indecent and never went over the line. He did remember her talking to some guy that he didn't know and thought was from out of town. He said he thought the guy was with his brother that night. He said there was another guy that he did know, a guy who was down and out and went around drawing pictures for people. The artist had been talking to the two guys who the bartender thought were brothers. He told them the older brother had left early in the night and the younger one stuck around. The young brother had been chatting Roseanne up at one point. He told the officer he was a good-looking guy, kind of big, and maybe blonde. He thought maybe he had gone with the group across the street to Copper Hatch that night. They now had a list of people they needed to find and talk to. There was the guy who beat her up once, there were the two brothers, and there was the artist drawing pictures. There were others on the list, but these were the ones at the top for now. When they found the artist at a bar, it was not fruitful at first. He remembered talking to Roseanne that night, but he didn't remember the two new guys with her. He said he had a bad memory, and the only reason he remembered Roseanne was because he heard about the murder so soon after. The police told him that he had been talking to the men and maybe could remember what they looked like, especially since he was an artist. He told the detectives he would think on it and see what he could come up with. Roseanne's parents and friends did not want to talk about her life to anyone. 
Her parents were already hurt by what they had found out about her murder. They didn't want to know any more about New York nights. Her friends didn't want to hurt her parents any more than they were already hurt, and they didn't want to say anything that might be interpreted as bad things about their friend. Roseanne was born in Bronx, New York, to John and Roseanne Quinn. She had two brothers and a sister. When Roseanne was 11, her family moved to New Jersey. At age 13, she was diagnosed with scoliosis, and it was bad enough to operate on. There were some accounts that would say that she had polio and had surgery on her back for that, but from what I could find, it was really scoliosis, and the reason she ended up with a limp is that after the back surgery was healed, there was a slight misalignment with her hips. It would be a tough thing for any kid to go through, but I imagine just after moving to a new neighborhood and then being laid up for a long time after surgery and ending up with a limp was probably hard on her socially. Her family was very traditional Irish Catholic. She attended Morris Catholic High School in Denville, New Jersey. She graduated in 1962 and went on to Newark State Teachers College. She graduated from there in 1966 and taught for three years in Newark, New Jersey. In 1969, she began teaching at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in the Bronx. Her class was eight-year-olds, and she often spent extra time with her students. The kids loved her. One time, Roseanne had told Stephen Resnick, the owner of the bar W.M. Tweeds, about how she was expected to get married and have kids just like her mom. She told him that she didn't know what she wanted or was even supposed to expect from adult life. She just knew she wanted to be freer than her mother had been. She wanted to be independent. This was a time in the 1970s when a lot of women were feeling that way and trying to make their mark, to have their own life. It was in May of 1972 when she moved into the studio apartment on West 72nd Street. She was attending night courses and working toward her master's degree. But she did spend some nights at the local bars, and she got to know people there. John Wayne Wilson was originally from Indiana. He was born November 3, 1949, to Lawrence Wayne Wilson and Marilyn Bassett Wilson. He was divorced from his first wife, Kathy Lux, in 1971, and they had two girls together in Indiana. In 1972, he married Candy Cole in Florida. He had an arrest record and had served time in Daytona Beach, Florida for disorderly conduct and Kansas City, Missouri for larceny. In July 1972, he escaped from jail in Miami where he was sentenced for theft and managed to get back to New York where he made a living as a street hustler. In Lacey Fosberg's book, Closing Time, she writes about meeting the family of John Wayne Wilson and some things his mother told her about him. His mother said as a child he'd spent a lot of time alone up in the attic or outside. Everything was normal until he was 10, his parents said, when he was hit by a car. He was unconscious for several seconds. He had been a traffic control boy outside of school the day when he was hit. He was taken to a doctor who only found bruises and no sign of a concussion. His parents say that things did change for him, though, after that, and he had bad headaches and some confusion. He ran away from home multiple times and had been prescribed Dilantin to help him with his headaches and what they called his nervousness. Later after his arrest, his father would be quoted in the New York Times. He said the family had taken their teenage son twice to Madison State Hospital, a state mental institution, for examination, and on both occasions, nothing was found wrong with the boy. He was always easygoing and didn't care, his father said, and to his knowledge, had never been violent. 
In Lacey Fosberg's book, however, there were more than two trips to the hospital, and Wilson was put on different tranquilizers at different times. From his medical records that she found, he had both a three-month and a four-month stay at mental hospitals. One psychiatrist wrote, When faced with stress and his aggressive impulses, his main form of defense at the present time is running away. He feels that if he is unable to do this, he may actually harm someone in the future. He feels unable to handle these impulses at the present time and seems to be getting progressively worse. He had run away from home many times, but was usually back within a day or two. One time it was up to a week. In the middle of 10th grade, however, he took all the money he had saved up from working different jobs, and he left. He didn't come back this time. The Thursday after Roseanne's murder, the artist who drew pictures at the bar called the police. He asked for the detective that he had talked to. He had remembered some things about that night, and the detective agreed to meet him for coffee. The artist told the detective about the two men that he had wanted to know about at the bar that night. He told him that he remembered the older one more than the younger one, and that the older one had left early, before Roseanne came in. The younger one had asked him to draw some pictures. He had asked him to draw pictures of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. The detective knew he was on to something now. Those drawings were found in Roseanne's apartment. Either the man had been in her apartment, or he had given her the pictures to take home. Roseanne had met Stephen Resnick, the owner of W.M. Tweed's, when she was first in New York in a different apartment. He was working at a bar then, and told her he had plans to own his own bar someday. They gradually became friends. She came to him for advice sometimes, and one time he tried to talk to her about her being loud and boisterous. His point was to help her realize that she tended to dominate the conversation when she was like that. He was trying to help, but she ended up depressed and a bit defeated. He wished he had never said anything. One night in 1967, she came into the bar he was working at, and it was a quiet night. While she and Stephen were talking, an older guy slid in the bar next to Roseanne. He told Steve he wanted another drink. Stephen went back behind the bar to pour him one. A few minutes later, Roseanne suddenly shrieked. The man had taken out his penis and was rubbing it on her leg. You goddamn son of a bitch, she yelled loudly. The man cowered back, but Roseanne reached out and slapped him hard across the face. The man put up his hands to protect his face. His penis was still dangling out of his pants. She threw her drink in his face. You creep, what do you think you're doing? Steve went to the man and took his arm to drag him outside. The man was whimpering like a dog and paralyzed. Roseanne reached out and slapped him hard again two more times across the face. Then the man started to cry and suddenly ran out of the bar. Steve was worried about Roseanne. He told her she should have let him handle that kind of thing. He was going to throw the guy out, but she hadn't given him a chance as she kept hitting him. He told her the guy was just sad and pathetic. Roseanne told him he got what he deserved and she wished she could have done more. In June 1970, John Wayne Wilson was 20 and he was in New York. He met Gary Guest one night outside of a bar. At first, he just walked by and for some reason, they both noticed each other. Wilson had been doing some street hustling to get by but he wasn't thinking about that when he saw Gary. He wasn't sure what he saw, and neither was Gary. They ended up taking a long walk together and talking. Then they went to Gary's place and spent some intimate time together. By the end of the night, Gary was thinking he might just be in love with a man he knew was a con artist, and Wilson thought he might be onto a good thing. 
Geary was 15 years older than Wilson. He had his own penthouse apartment, a closet full of nice clothes, and a healthy bank account. They became friends and met up to play pool or go to the movies. Geary usually saw Wilson two, three, sometimes up to four times a week. But sometimes a week or two would go by and he hadn't heard from him. When he did show up again, he would ask him about it. I had to go out of town, John Wayne Wilson would say. After several months of being friends, he did let him know what he did for a living, but did not get into details. One time, Wilson asked Geary to go to the American Museum of Natural History with him. Geary asked him why he wanted to go there, and Wilson said he liked dinosaurs. While they were there, he told him a story from when he was in grade school. Wilson said a teacher wrote pterodactyl on the blackboard, spelling it T-E-R-R-I-D-A-C-T-Y-L-E. Wilson had told the teacher she spelled it wrong, and she said she hadn't. They argued about this, and she punished him for it. After school, he looked it up in a book on prehistoric animals, and he was right. It was pterodactyl, P-T-E-R-O-D-A-C-T-Y-L. He told his mother about this, and she told him school teachers were uppity. They always think they are better than everyone else. Over time, John Wayne Wilson told Geary Guest more about his past, told him about the terrible times in the institutions. Geary felt for him and wanted to help. The most important thing he felt he could do was show Wilson that he could trust him. Sometime in the early part of 1971, Wilson moved in with Geary. The idea was for him to stop the street hustling and look for a decent job. He would have the time with no pressure if he moved into Geary's place. He stayed there for a few months, but eventually became disappointed in the lack of good jobs available to him, with no diploma and no experience. One night, Wilson packed up a suitcase and just left. There was no note at all. He was just gone. In the last year or so of Roseanne's life, Steve Resnick had seen her with some boyfriends, but none that he thought of as significant. She asked him his opinion on all her boyfriends. He never really liked any of them, or at best thought they were just okay. One night, May 6, 1972, something different happened. Some said it was Roseanne's fault and she should have known better. Others said it was Freddie's fault and Roseanne was just a victim. Freddie Watson was 5'10", unemployed, and known to be dangerous. He had a reputation for a violent temper, and he liked guns. It was a slow night, and the bartender remembered Freddie approaching Roseanne. She didn't want anything to do with him at first, but eventually let him buy her a drink. They ended up talking and even laughing. Later that night, Roseanne left on her own, but a few minutes later, Freddie followed her and went into her building. Around midnight, a neighbor of Roseanne's heard yelling and screaming coming from her apartment. When the neighbor looked out into the hallway, she saw Freddie, half-undressed, yelling and pulling on his clothes. He screamed, you motherfucker, and ran down the stairs. The neighbor found Roseanne and holding her face and crying. She was bruised and beaten up. The neighbor knew who Freddie was from the neighborhood and asked Roseanne why she would bring him back to her apartment. She told her he was the worst kind, and didn't she know that? Why would she bring him here? Roseanne just kept saying she didn't know. She didn't know. The neighbor told her it was okay now. It was over, and she would know better now. Roseanne went to the police station the next day and reported an assault and attempted robbery. Freddie Watson was arrested, but a judge ended up dismissing the charges. The neighbors said they heard more sounds like the ones that night about two weeks later. Roseanne didn't want their help. They said it became sort of a regular thing about every two weeks or so. 
The neighbor who had originally checked on her had a boyfriend who told her that he thought Roseanne wanted it this way, that she liked rough sex. John Wayne Wilson appeared back in Gary Gist's life out of the blue, as if nothing happened. Wilson had gotten in trouble in Florida with some robberies he took part in with acquaintances down there. He met his soon-to-be second wife as well and told Geary all about it. Geary flew down to Florida to help Wilson find a lawyer for court and ended up being at the wedding between John Wayne Wilson and Candy Cole. In May, he was sentenced to one year in jail. Wilson wrote to Geary, and at first his letters were positive about things that he was looking forward to in the future. By the last week of June, however, the letters turned depressive. He was more and more miserable. In July, Geary got a call from Wilson. He had escaped and was calling from a phone booth. Geary bought Wilson and his new wife Candy two plane tickets to New York under different names. The three of them stayed at Geary's for months, and things were good. But eventually, Candy got pregnant, and Wilson's demeanor changed, and he had issues. John Wayne Wilson got a regular job, but after taxes and everything else they took out, his check was very small, and he felt he should be doing better as a husband and a father. Things were bad for a while, and in December, he told Candy she had to go home to Miami. Candy says the reason she listened was because he told her she had to, because he didn't want anything to happen to her. Both Roseanne and Wilson went home for Christmas that year. Roseanne went to New Jersey, and no one noticed anything unusual. She told people that she hoped 1973 would be a better year. Wilson was able to go home to Indiana thanks to Geary. He was also able to buy presents for his family with Geary's credit card. He came back in time for New Year's Eve, and he and Geary went to Times Square to watch the New Year come in. Roseanne spent New Year's Eve alone. She read Deliverance, and the next day she stayed in bed and picked up the book where she left off. She had almost finished the book when she got up to get dressed and go out. That same day, the day of the murder, John Wayne Wilson and Geary Guest went out to dinner near 72nd Street. Wilson suggested they stop for a drink after dinner. They had never been to W.M. Tweeds before. At some point that night, Geary left W.M. Tweeds and John Wayne Wilson stayed behind. Roseanne and Wilson were introduced to each other, and they ended up talking. As the night wore on, someone suggested they all move it over to the copper hatch across the street, and they all agreed it was a good idea and ended up going. At the end of the evening, Roseanne and Wilson left together and went to her apartment. Wilson did not tell Geary how he killed Roseanne or why. He did not tell him what led up to the awful attack. But he did tell him what he did afterward to clean up. Wilson took one of Roseanne's slips and rubbed it over anywhere in the apartment where he might have touched something. Then the doorknob and onto the elevator and so on. He was naked during the attack on Roseanne, so he took a shower to wash the blood off and put the clothes back on that he had been wearing in the bar. He later threw the slip down an incinerator chute in another building. Gary gave Wilson the money to fly to Miami after he told him what he had done. Gary was looking in the paper each day to see if Wilson's story was even true. Meanwhile, the police were still looking at every angle, but their number one suspect, Freddie Watson, they couldn't find. On Friday, the story hit the papers. Young teacher found slain in West Side Flat, Daily News. Geary read some of the newspaper accounts to Wilson over the phone. The newspaper mentioned the police were looking for two men seen in the bars that night with Roseanne, but no one knew who they were. 
Freddie Watson was still under suspect, but they didn't mention him by name in the papers. Geary sent Wilson money to fly home to Indiana at his request, and Wilson went to stay with his brother. Then a composite sketch article came out on Sunday, January 7th. Police sketch, man sought as link in teacher slang. The likeness was of Gary Guest. There is nothing more he could do to keep his friend John Wayne Wilson safe. He knew that he had to come forward. Even so, he consulted his therapist and lawyer and was told what he already knew. He could be arrested for aiding and abetting, or worse, as an accomplice. There really was some outstanding detective work in this case. The murderer was a drifter that had no connection to Roseanne Quinn and had just met her that night. The only person that knew about the murder besides John Wilson was his friend Gary Guest, and he thought it probably wasn't even true. The police detectives finding the man who frequented nearby bars and saw Roseanne that night along with some other men did remember the face of Gary Guest, and the drawing was similar. When they put that in the paper, Gary Guest knew it was time to come forward to the police. John Wayne Wilson was arrested at his brother's house in Indiana. He was taken back to New York to face the charges. John Wayne Wilson ended up hanging himself in his cell on May 6, 1973. There was an investigation into this afterwards. and The Daily News New York reported on this on June 22, 1973. The following... Although a prompt psychiatric evaluation was important, the board said, the new attorneys managed to arrange an interview by a private psychiatrist no earlier than March 3rd. Eventually, they also got a court order for neurolo- neurological evaluation, but did not press hard enough for early tests. During Wilson's 16-day stay at Bellevue in late April and early May, the neurologist failed to appear. Supreme Court Justice Arnold Freeman, who had ordered the Bellevue test, displayed a lack of judicial concern by failing to check up to see if the, evalu- if the evaluations were carried out, the board's report said. Although prison doctors had earlier diagnosed him as a schizophrenic and suicidal, he was not placed in the mental observation ward, which was overcrowded. Instead, he was put in an inadequately watched cell where he was found hanged the next day. Roseanne's murder was used as a cautionary tale for single girls. I'll share some of the newspaper articles I found on this at the end of the episode. Of course, a young woman living alone should be careful, but Roseanne did not deserve this. She had every right to live the single life just like her male counterparts did. She met the wrong man, a deeply disturbed individual, and the situation erupted into a horrific encounter. The sources that I used for today's episode, Closing Time by Lacey Fosberg, F-O-S-B-U-R-G-H. That's the book that is the true story of the Mr. Goodbar murder. Also, source used was the movie Looking for Mr. Goodbar. The book Looking for Mr. Goodbar, I have not read, but just wanted to throw that out there in case you wanted to read that as well by Judith Rosner. The other sources that I used for today's episode was New York Times, 1973, The Daily News in New York, 1973, Pennsylvania's York Daily Record, 1973, 
Rushville, Republican, Indiana, 1973 and other years after that, the Indianapolis Star, 1973, and the Star Press, Indiana, 1973. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate your support. And as always, be safe.